Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show i believe that individuals make a difference. And even if it's not true, believing that we can gives us purpose in our lives. I mean, Judaism has a concept called tikkun olam. And basically it's that this world that we live in is imperfect and it's each person's responsibility to do their bit to repair it. And so those of us like you and like me who are blessed with the level of opportunity of education, I think we just have a sacred responsibility. It's my belief, and I've lived my life this way, that individuals can really make a difference and that everybody has responsibility to try to make a difference to the best of their capacity with the resources they have. And I agree with you. I'm just wondering, like, do you, you make a difference in society, which may be setting yourself up for a task that's impossible, or do you make a difference in yourself and nobody's perfect, but you try as best as possible to live by example and to teach by example. And that's how you impact society. And hopefully that ripples out. We're all reconstituting now. We're reconstituting these virtual societies from home. So we have to think about how do we realize our best values in the new reality that we're in. So I think that we, this is a balance. None of us can get it right, but being human is, is struggling with it. Well, right. And I think that's yeah. an important part of today's skill acquisition is that we have to do it as adults rather than as kids. Like, look at what's going to happen after this pandemic. The dust is going to clear 
and we're going to be left standing. And some people are going to have to change careers. And some people yep. are going to have lots of us. Yes. And some people are going to have to find other passions and other interests and skip the line of being successful yes. in that career, which you've done very successfully in, in many careers. And, and other people are going to tell them, well, you can't do this. You don't have a PhD in genetic engineering. You haven't been doing chocolate shamanism for 20 years like we have. You're not allowed to give them paid your dues. And I think overcoming yeah, that uh, is maybe part, uh, how do you say the word, hubris? But maybe Yeah, and, and chutzpah, hubris plus chutzpah. Hey, hey. Hey, how are you? Good. Crazy oh, times. I know, and, you, and you've been all over the world in the past few weeks. We were you know, I, talk about COVID. I, uh, it was like the last gasp of this global world in which I live, and then it was done. And uh, now I'm kind of grounded, but I have to say I am working around the clock. I've never felt a greater sense of mission than right now. We can talk about it in the in the podcast. But well, we're we're recording. Let's talk about it right oh, now. Oh, good. I think I think I know what you mean. I think we're this is like a new kind of work that we're getting accustomed to that is is good. Like as opposed to going to like nonstop senseless meetings and conferences and networking events, we can actually do things remotely and get more done. And like, particularly with you, like if, if I didn't already know you, then I think it'd be more difficult to do a podcast like this right. remotely, but we already know each other. So yep. it's not like we're really... I know how you react to things. Like we know how to have a conversation so yeah. we can do this and be more effective. Yeah, but that's, I think that's part of it. Certainly there's an efficiency of just being home and, and everybody loves yoga pants these days. But Not I think me. there's something. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think there's something even bigger for those of us who live our lives with some kind of mission that's even remotely connected to healing the world, to getting, helping people get through this crisis. Now is this moment. And so that's why I'm just feeling so jazzed. There's so much work to be done to, in whatever field you're in, because our lives are changing. I mean, it's with any one of these kinds of changes, people have this sense, um, that, all right, we're going to get through this and then life is going to snap back. Our lives aren't going to snap back to what they were. This is going to be a, a new reality and we're setting its terms now. And that's yeah, just really exciting. If you think about it, like this is probably the third time in, in your life, my life, all of our lives where a societal event really scared us to the core. So like 9-11 was probably the first for me at least. Mm -hmm. Then the financial crisis scared me to the core. I thought, you know, in the, if you read the newspapers, we were going to go back to being cavemen because all the banks would collapse and whatever. Right. And now there's this. And each time everyone thought this is the end of the world, each time it seemed like, you know, there was going to be a new normal. And in fact, there was a new normal after right. each incident, like going to the airport after 9-11 is a reminder of that. And uh, and also each time, unfortunately, New York City was ground zero right. for the event. Uh, I mean, Wuhan for the world, but in yeah. the United States, New York City sort of seems to be. Yeah. But you know what you said is very interesting because a lot of people who I talk to, and I've been doing these Instagram lives uh, every day for, for people, but they say, what book am I reading? And I recommend uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. which, uh, uh, kind of resonates with what you were just saying. This is a guy who was in Auschwitz. His family had been killed 
And, and the only way he could survive was by finding meaning in his life. And so his meaning was he knew he was going to go out and eventually write this book. Yep. And, you know, and also there was some meaning in his life. He, he would, re, he would remind himself of his wife and how he would one day see her again. Sadly, he never saw her again, but that gave him enough meaning to continue. And I, th I think you're right. I think we have to realize that purpose is greater than our nine to five and, and our routines. And, and, and as human beings, we have to sort of face this and, and, and you've even mentioned in one of your articles, realize who we are so we could, yeah. we could rise up and, and face this challenge. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you may have seen, I think you're referencing my CNN.com article from, from yes. very recently. And that I think our lives have been virtualizing since at least the, the advent of the telegraph, but even before with mail, with all of these things that have allowed us to have, in many ways, intimacy from a distance. And those of us who, like you and like me, who think about the future, have always seen this trend line where we were going to become more virtual. And we, you know, even this podcast we're doing from different, we're in the same city, but we're, we're separated and it's going out to people who yeah, are- Yeah, you were just all, in Qatar. I'm not going I mean, to you. I know, that was the end. That world's gone now. That was no, last by, week's world. By the way, two weeks ago, I was uh, performing all around the Netherlands. Yeah, no, no. It, it's like a distant, that's the whole point is that that, that world is gone. It's, it's so some, weird because yeah. I can't even imagine like a, a few weeks ago, if I could have told you in two weeks, oh, I'm not going to be in the Netherlands. The Netherlands actually is going to be blocked off from the rest of the world. Yeah. And I was going to be in lockdown. I'm the only one in my building left. Like everybody in my building, I don't even know where they went. They all, they're all they gone. The Hamptons. You have a nice building. Wherever they I went, mean, they all, they, they disappeared. No, no, it's just crazy. I'm, I was supposed to be in Abu Dhabi now. And you know, I, I was basically in another country every week for, uh, for months. But we're all here now. And this is our this is our moment because you talked about 2001 and 2008 and those were really big crises and you can say that the world was just different after uh, 2001 after the 9/11 attacks both because of the attacks and in some ways even more because of the nature of the response to those attacks I mean there was a, I remember that time so vividly. And I remember thinking just on September 12th, now is the time when the president of the United States needs to come forward and say, we have been attacked. We've been attacked by these terrible terrorists and we are going to go to the ends of the earth. We're gonna find every person who is responsible for this in one way or another. And we could just do this the Israeli way and we're just gonna murder them. And we're gonna murder them no matter how long it takes if we have to spend a gazillion dollars everyone who was involved in any way with this attack will be dead. Um, and anyone who harbors them, you'll be dead. But we also recognize that the world system is broken, a world where billions of people don't have access to food or healthcare or education or sanitation is an unstable world. And that instability creates all kinds of problems. We're not saying that this terrorism is a result of that, but this is our moment to fix that. And we call on all of the countries of the world to join us in that effort. It you would, know, we, we would be in a different world. And so yeah, here, and then I'll, I'll circle back after you, after you, James. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think um, part of this is not only the, you know, the virtualization of society, which, which 
as you mentioned, has dated maybe hundreds of years, but particularly in the past 20 years with internet access, we could, we're talking from across the city, but you could just as easily be in, you know, in Australia right now and we could still be talking. Um, but, uh, uh, I, the globalization also has increased the likelihood of things like global terrorism or a global financial crisis, or which is the scariest thing right now, which is, you know, a global pandemic, which has yeah. spread because we do our manufacturing in China. We do our socializing in Italy. We do our exactly. tech geniuses in Silicon Valley. These are the first three places to go on lockdown, not coincidentally. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's the pros and cons and maybe kind of globalization 2.0 is figuring out how we can get back to being closer with our loved ones while still working virtually and remotely with all our colleagues and friends and potential coworkers and so on. Yeah, I think that's right. We're going back to our villages in many ways. I mean, you and I, James, live these global lives and, and you, um, you, know, you have family and so you're kind of a little more grounded than me, but you know this from my life. I mean, every week I'm going and coming and, and I kind of live in that, you lived in that in that sphere now yeah, i'm, I'm home in my living, yoga pants like everybody else we've been living virtually through you every week yeah. like, okay <laughs> doing a chocolate shaman ceremony exactly in Thailand, and now you're doing a exactly and we're going to still do our chocolate shaman thing we'll talk about that later but we're going to do it virtually because life is virtual and i i do think that we're going to re, we're going to reconnect with the people immediately in our lives we're going to reconnect with certain kinds of glo of local supply chains. I mean, people have been talking about sustainable food and and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I have friends in in different cities, in big cities, who are now buying chickens, and they they just they have their backyard. They feel that's big enough for some chickens. The chickens are gonna are gonna lay eggs. My thing is, just, we're gonna kind of live locally in new ways. But we're also going to live globally and virtually in in new ways. And just a, a few examples. I mean, the obvious ones here in New York, the New York Stock Exchange is is about to shut down um, for just there won't be people. We'll go to electronic trading, and that's never going to come back. I mean, there's there, we're just not going to do it. The no, um, it was already it was already gone. I feel yeah. except for formality. Like yes. I used to I used to hang out on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange like twenty years ago. It was jam packed with people screaming and yelling and trading and ordering. Yeah. And now All when I go hand there, signals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's gone. It's just basically it's it's dead silent when you go in there. There's one person per terminal, and there's just only really a handful of people there compared to twenty years ago. So I feel that was already gone. I yeah. mean, most yes. trading was electronic. So that's that's happening. Um, Amazon Go with cashierless stores. I mean, that's already happening. You know, the local CVSs and Rite Aid here, they all have the self-checkout kiosks. So that part is going. But there's some of this stuff is actually, it hits even closer uh, to home for, uh, for many of us. Here in New York, we are gearing up what, to what everybody thinks is going to be an overwhelming experience for our hospitals. We have military ships coming in, all of our hospitals are planning the equivalent of field hospitals. I mean, there's talk of York Avenue just shutting down and turning it into a tent city with those big tents from the marathon and having hundreds of thousands of beds. Hopefully we can get enough ventilators for what people are fearing um, could happen over the next three to, five, uh, three to five weeks. When you look at the fatality rates from Italy, about 10% of the fatalities have been healthcare workers. And that's, and mm -hmm. if the fatality rate 
is let's call it 1%, let's call it 2%. That means that there's a much larger number of healthcare workers who are getting infected. We certainly saw that from the early stages of this crisis in China, when the Chinese set up those specialty hospitals and they had learned, Chinese do stuff very seriously, 17 years of lessons learned since SARS, they set up their specialty hospitals with their experts and so many of their doctors and nurses got it. So we have to anticipate that over the coming weeks, we're gonna have more and more doctors and nurses kind of at least temporarily and sadly in some cases permanently kind of taken off the field, not able to function. And then we're gonna call in um, all the people, the retirees, the nurses, aides, the medical students and, and whatever. But there's gonna come a time where we're gonna recognize that we need to do medicine from a distance. And there's a whole community that I'm involved with through Singularity University, Exponential Medicine. We've been talking about robotics, AI, telemedicine, all of those kinds of things. And we've seen them as gradual trends, but we're probably gonna see just a quantum leap toward these kinds of virtualizations. And so it's, it's, it's you know, years ago, Benjamin Barber had this great book, Jihad versus McWorld, how the, the kind of, we become more global and more local at the same time. And I think that's what's gonna happen. We're gonna become more real, uh, which we're all finding you know, I'm here in, in New York with my, with my girlfriend and we're, we're kind of here all in. Um, and there are people, uh, we're gonna become more, more virtual and then there's gonna be a, an interplay between those two experiences. Well, let me, let me, I mean, you've been traveling around and giving talks in a lot of conferences where I'm sure the main discussion was COVID. I think the title of, of one of your talks, uh, well, well, like what was the title of your talk in Qatar? I feel like you were, you were bordering the topic on your yeah, entire oh, Yeah, very much so. All of my work. Is, so in, um, uh, in Qatar, it was a debate about, I don't remember the exact title, but should we genetically engineer future humans? And, and so there were three positions. Um, the, uh, so there was one person who was all in, and that was the brilliant Oxford philosopher, uh, Julian Savalescu. And then there was one person who said under no circumstances, and that's a woman named Katie Hansen from the, the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley. And they are kind of progressive conservatives. Um, and I was in the middle, uh, which is my very strong view in that we have these technologies, which are godlike from the at least from the perspective of our, of our ancestors. Um, and we have to use them in order to protect us, uh, to just not only from these kinds of diseases, from cancer, from other kind of terrible things, but, that, but they also have to be regulated. And, that's, and we have to find this, this middle space. But, but, so Jamie, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your argument, because you discussed this in your, in your book actually, where you have the discussion with, with people who claim that genetically engineering humans is quote unquote, not natural. And right. you, you point people to, well, if you got sick and, and you needed uh, penicillin, would you, you know, penicillin is something lab grown. It's not right. natural. Yeah. Would you prefer using leaves and berries like we did yeah. when we were cavemen and then just dying a painful death yeah. and people would be ham and haw and they'd be like, okay, that, you know, there is some, you know, or you pointed out the example of corn which humans have genetically engineered over the millennia uh, to be, instead of just a few leaves, it to be actually this tasty right. yellow husk that we that we eat. And and you know, and, and then in our discussion in our prior podcast, 
you you kind of make the, the the good point that look, if we don't do it, China's going to do it, and or somebody's going to do it, and they're simply going to have you know this race of superhumans compared to us when it's right. all over. So we kind of are almost morally obligated to to do it now that the technology's there. Would would you say that's a fair summary of your argument? Which is more, I definitely you know, what think I, yeah no I definitely think that we're more ob morally obligated to do it once it's safe and if we do the 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 analysis the risk benefit analysis and say geez like we have this technology we can prevent a future child from terrible suffering and death from a genetic disorder why wouldn't we do that you so, could so also that you could do right now right so that we well, do well so we do through it's, it's the early stage of gene therapies where there's like an existing person and those things it's called CAR T therapy. You take out their blood cells, you genetically engineer their own cells to enhance their cancer fighting superpowers and you put those cells back. And that's, and so and then if they have kids, uh, that change doesn't pass on to their children. When we talk about heritable genetic engineering, um, that's something there are three that we know of three, uh, genome edited, babies who exist now, so-called CRISPR babies. And those were the ones that this Chinese um, biophysicist, uh, Hu Jiangkui was responsible for, where he was, and it's interesting in the context of the present situation, he was looking uh, to edit the CCR5 gene. And the CCR5 gene, it's a, a receptor point for the HIV virus. And so the goal was to give these kids enhanced enhanced resistance to HIV. And HIV, like coronavirus, is what we call a zoonotic virus, meaning it jumped from animals to humans. And so right now, the, the coronavirus, it, it attaches, and you can kind of think of, um, uh, of a virus, it's almost like, like one of those little like pods that, that docks with the International Space Station. It has to connect somewhere. So I, sort of, it, I sort of picture it like Velcro. Like it hits the yeah. cell and it kind of attaches to different parts of the cell. But, but there's a receptor point in our genome where this particular virus connects. So it's not that it can go anywhere. It, it connects at a certain point in the, in the genome. And just like Hu Jiankui was trying to disrupt the CCR5, just so going back to my analogy of this kind of like a like a, a little spaceship docking with the space station um if you so just you know from all these movies there's that little place where the 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 thing sticking out the whatever use the indian the shiva and the lingam meet and if you disrupt the receptor and it can't dock then it kind of tries to dock and it says all right no docking place i guess i guess i can't dock so the point you would disrupt um would be what's called the ace2 gene but that gene, um, it regulates our heart function. So we don't know, we don't have a way of disrupting that that wouldn't interfere with the basic survivability of our, of our species. But you can imagine, and people like, like the brilliant George Church at, at, at Harvard are thinking about this, but you can imagine um, what it might, so how we could think about, well, are there ways of engineering greater viral resistance among humans. I mean, right now, that's a bit of a way, a way off. Um, George and others are using, are thinking about this in the context of what's called xenotransplantation, which is um, growing human organs in pigs because we have such a shortage of organs for, uh, for, for transplant. So let's just say <clears throat> that this is, Jed, that we have 
a huge problem with, with viruses, um, both quote unquote natural viruses like this, but we're entering the age of synthetic biology where you could easily imagine synthetic viruses, viruses that have been manipulated to really, to be much more aggressive than this. And because, I mean, that's the essence of my work is in a sentence is that now we have the tools to rewrite and hack the code of life and, and can we use those tools wisely? Um, so the question is, if we had that and we could engineer greater resistance, greater resilience among our, our future generations, um, would we want to do it? And I think that, that we can, but we're going to recognize that we're going to have greater threats and a greater responsibility and ability to respond to those threats. And those things are going to develop hand in hand. So let's, let's take a, this, this leads to so many different questions as usual. I feel like mm -hmm. you just uh, planted the seeds for five different podcasts, but uh, count me in. <laughs> All right. Well, this, we got nothing but time. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's take a step back and just summarize what can we, like what's science fiction and what's reality over the next 10 years? Because when I think genetically engineered humans, and we've discussed this before, but there's so many different possibilities, you know, and, and, and there's, and let's just call it the line of science fiction is, is 10 years from now. Cause so we sure. don't truly really know what happens after 10 years, yeah. but what, what do you see? Yeah. What amazing things? Like if you were to yeah, say yeah. five amazing things that could happen even within the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like. going to go back in order to go forward a little bit. So uh, genome sequencing. So we, the, the, this is the, the, I mean, it's the golden age, the only age of, uh, of genome sequencing. Um, but genome sequencing is moving towards being ubiquitous and essentially free. So we're going to have, um, everybody's going to have their whole genome sequence. And it'll just be because when, you, when a newborn is baby, you have the heel prick blood test. Um, we'll just do a whole genome sequencing either then or, or before. So then we're going to have billions of people with their genomes sequenced. And then we'll, and we're going to move as part of the virtualization that we discussed um, toward uh, distance medicine and electronic health records are going to become much, much more important. You're not going to go see the doctor as much who's going to put a stethoscope on your heart. A lot of this is going to be digitized. Um, and so then we're going to have these massive data pools and we're going to use our tools of big data analytics and machine learning to decipher patterns. Because if you're just an N of one, if just, if there's one person uh, who has their genome sequenced and you have the best sequencing in the world, it's absolutely useless. The way that we figure out genetics is by these massive data sets. So that's really, really important. And we're going to have that and then we're going to have these insights coming from that that are going to allow us to do a bunch of different things. One is gene therapies that we, that we just talked about. Um, two um, is we're going to move into a world of predictive healthcare, health, and life because we're going to see these patterns and we're going to say, hey, you have an increased risk for X or you have a great chance of Y. Maybe it's being a fantastic physicist. And so, and so then, Jamie, let, oh, yeah. let, let me take a step back and just kind of translate a little bit one aspect of what you said. So sure. we're going to have all these genomes, like each person has their own, almost like a fingerprint, their you know, unique yeah. genome sequence. And the reason why one person's useless is because there's these tens of thousands or millions of, I don't know how many possible, there's trillions of possible gene sequences. Right. And if you have a disease and you have a genome sequence, no, you can't look at your 
your sequence and say what genes were ca causing this disease. What you need is a billion sequences and you need like a billion people and some way of describing that person. Like this person has black hair, he's six feet tall, he has brown eyes, he has Tay-Sachs disease, he has muscular dystrophy, he has an IQ of this. You have all these uh, features of each person and then you're able to, given those features and given all these genome sequence, uh, sequences, find specifically which genome sequence, which genes are correlated with at, with which attributes. Oh, it turns out everybody with muscular dystrophy has this mutation in this particular gene of their genome sequence. And that's when you start to get the clues of how to engineer a genome sequence so this person doesn't have muscular dystrophy. So, yeah, so, so let me just respond to that, which is, Almost entirely right, but just like a few little tweaks. Um, so our traits range in their genetic complexity from genetically simple to genetically complex. So um, especially we have some genetically simple traits and particularly diseases that are what we call single gene mutation uh, diseases or Mendelian disorders is another way that these are called. And that's if you have, so if you have, a Tay-Sachs, for example, that's one gene. It's, it's one mutation. It's like an on-off switch. These are our binary Tay-Sachs, Huntington's, sickle cell uh, disease. So right now we know about you know, five to 7,000 of these. And so we're at the stage where you could look at somebody's genome and then you could say, all right, well, I know where um, Tay-Sachs is coded for. And then you can say, all right, this person has Tay-Sachs and we'll probably find that some people have protective genes. So they could have a gene that, because we haven't sequenced these kinds of people yet. So you could have someone who's like, geez, I would have thought you have Tay-Sachs, but for some reason that we don't understand, you don't. And we'll find that there's, there's some other mutation that is, is, is balancing uh, that out. But then as we move up the complexity scale, we get to more complex. So skin color, is relatively simple. It's not one gene, but maybe it's five or six or, or 10 points on the genome. And so we can understand that pretty well. When you get to a trait like height, like genetic component of IQ, like all of these kinds of things, what we're talking about are many hundreds or maybe thousands of genes and, and mutations. And there's, there's the coding genome and there's the non-coding. We don't need to get into that, uh, into that complexity. And so for that, that even let's say there are two people, I know you have an amazingly high I, uh, IQ. And I, I, I don't know about I that. I'm the one who's saying it, so I can say it. Um, so, but there are two people who may have the same IQ level, whatever it is, but they pr for sure have a different genetic foundation of how they got that because it's it's not that that everyone that you can get you can get to the same point with a lot of of different ways but we humans are not infinitely complex beings we are just these huge data sets and everybody is a big data set and so then that's the question is how do you make sense of this kind of complexity and we can't do it in our brains but we can do it with our tools and that's where genomics and AI intersect. And we're going to begin, that's why this concept that I write about in, in, in the book, in Hacking Darwin, about polygenic scoring is so important because once we start comparing genetics and outcomes, we're going to use, be able to use predictive analytics, which already are working to say, 
you know, this person, or we should maybe even this embryo, because let's say we're selecting from 10 pre-implanted embryos in a lab, selecting, uh, picking which one's going to be implanted in the, in the future mother, um, this one has a higher likelihood than the others of having the highest genetic component of IQ or being tallest or having the most outgoing personality. Um, but that's, that's why as, as, the, as the underlying genetics of a trait become more complex, um, we move more into the space of predictive algorithms. Right, because given so many, the complexity, like once you start saying there's two genes, there's three genes, there's 12 genes, there's 50 genes that have to change to uh, create a certain attribute, the complex, it's like a, it's like a chessboard. On yes. the first move, maybe you have, you know, 20 possibilities, but if you look at all the possibilities, five, six moves down, there's billions and billions of yes. possibilities. So, Correct. so the complexity, it becomes an AI problem. You have to, you have to do this big data analysis, right. similar to what Google has done in creating the world's best chess program or the world's best go program. It's a similar right. type of yeah. uh, analysis, almost like uh, complex speech recognition techniques. Yeah, so it, you, it, you have to find exactly. the patterns in the data that you didn't even know were there. That's exactly right. And, and when we think about the, just the trend lines, our human biology um, has been at, at its current level of complexity for millions of, of years. But the sophistication of our tools are on an ascending exponential J-curve. And so there will come a point when the sophistication of our tools meets and then exceeds the complexity of our biology. Well, it's interesting because I would say for a good 30, 40 years, AI wasn't really on that J-curve. So the J-curve sort of refers to, yeah. uh, named after Steve Jurvetson, uh, right? And it sort of refers to- Is that to, right? I didn't know that. I learned yeah. something every day. I yeah. thought it was because when you look at the curve, it looks like a J. I think he named it though. But you know what? I, I bet he changed his name to we have gotta a J We got to fact check that. But, <laughs> right. uh, uh, so I could be totally wrong, but I believe that's the case. Yeah. But, because uh, I think he wrote about it. But oh, uh, I'm so glad somebody, like our civilization would be screwed if somebody, if I had invented it. So it's the M curve. It's like, oh shit, it looked really good. <laughs> it looked and then like it crashed. <laughs> and then it looked good again. And then it crashed and now we're screwed. Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google it right now. But uh, it, it seemed like AI wasn't really progressing enough to handle these yeah. big data problems. Like even Peter Thiel pointed out there was no yeah. innovation. But then Google sort of comes along and takes big data and yeah. creates the world champion Go program, which was considered impossible. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, I think we're starting to we're starting to get there. Yeah, and those, so it was people like like Jeffrey Hinton, who's a, a Canadian professor, and all these guys who were toiling in the darkness with this idea that that neural networks mimicking the functioning of the brain was a better way than just kind of like the the kind of sheer logic logic if then of of deep blue. So those guys. Um, uh, Deep Mind, um, which Demis Hassabis and these other brilliant guys in the UK, they built this company that that uh, created the algorithm that beat the world's all the world's great Go champions, and then Google acquired them, and now Google you know, is the most advanced AI company in the in, in the world. And AI is something where you need a big organization, and it's it's incredible what's happening. There was a great book, uh, and this is this is going to tie back into everything. Yeah. Well, we're going to get back to the ten most amazing uh, possible 
genetically engineered miracles that will happen in the next 10 years, but it yeah. all kind of stems from, from this, this combination of uh, cheap genomic sequencing. And suddenly now this, uh, uh, you know, developments in how we analyze big data. But if you, there's a great book comparing the games of chess computers prior to uh, the DeepMind one, yeah. uh, the Google DeepMind one, and and now, and it turns out the the what's called the brute force chess computers that just relied on the speed of their processing, they make very unusual moves, and that people can't really figure out why they would do it, but they are just calculating so much deeper than humans. But the AI one, the, the, they made a program that taught itself the rules of chess, and then within three hours was it was able just teaching yeah. itself was able to beat the world champion that one makes very human like moves but yeah. just very well like it'll start attacking yeah. the king aggressively so you under you sort of understand what it's doing but it has a very aggressive interesting style but from a human perspective you could actually understand it it's just yeah, I think to be great. some of it some of it will understand and some of it we won't I mean the way I say is when you look at a dog or, or a dolphin or whatever, you kind of have a sense that there's a lot going on there. It's just, we don't know how to evaluate it. And so it's the same thing. People are waiting for these robots and these AI systems that are gonna be just like us. And then like saying, well, you know, it got that little thing wrong. It didn't act like a human. It's like saying that dolphin is an idiot, and 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 so I and I think that it's going to be its own form of intelligence, inspired and created by us, but ultimately with its own trajectory. That's going to be, and we're not going to be able to fully understand it. Yeah, you're totally right. I don't know why everyone seems to think, like particularly in science fiction movies, that human intelligence is somehow the goal of artificial intelligence. It's totally not the goal. Never was. Totally agree. And 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 it's like you're saying. It's like trying to say, okay, we're going to finally teach this dolphin how to act yeah. like a human. That would be pointless. Like it's a no, it different just, thing. I agree. Like imagine that you were just some kind of space people, and you were coming down to Earth, and you said, "We're while we're here orbiting the Earth, we're going to create a, a super intelligence, an artificial in, uh, intelligence." Um, and one thing is we can kind of do it and kind of abstract terms, let it learn and let it grow and let it be, let it, it be its own thing. Or we can just pick one branch of monkey that's been like super successful on earth and let's make our super intelligence AI just like that monkey. And imagine humans weren't here and, and we were the people on that spaceship and we said, oh yeah, chimpanzee intelligence. Chimpanzees seem to be the, the smartest entities down there. Let's build our AI to be just like chimpanzees. And then it's like, you know, these AIs, they're not flinging their shit properly. This, we we yeah. have failed. Yeah. But I, thought, like I, I, thought you, yeah. I thought you were going to suggest, let's let's genetically modify these chimpanzees to be smart like us. And then that's how humans were created. Maybe that's what you were suggesting. Yeah. Well, we did fornicate with the Neanderthals. So who knows Who knows all the twists and turns of how we got here? Well, okay. So given given that now we can, we can get the data to basically sequence everybody and that will one sooner or later happen where we start to store this data and privacy issues aside and 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 we have this these big data innovations what what are some things that are going to be amazing that we're going to see fairly soon now that we're kind of approaching this oh let's call it a singularity of of ai and uh uh genomics sequencing yeah. so the first phase is going to be a fundamental transformation of the way our healthcare system works 
Um, and we're going to move, which we've already begun, from generalized healthcare based on population averages to precision healthcare uh, based on each person's individual biology. And then very quickly, we're going to move to predictive medicine, healthcare, health, and life. And so, as I was saying before, just from the moment of birth, you're going to know your risk profile. You're going to know some capacities that you may have better than average abilities, potential abilities in. And we're going to start organizing our lives and our healthcare. And that's going to move our healthcare um, away from uh, sick care, where you kind of, oh, I, I have a lump, and then you go see the doctor. But maybe that lump represents something that has been with you from the moment of conception. So we're going to think very, very differently about healthcare. And then that seems kind of boring to people who say, well, I know I want to know about kind of all the sci-fi stuff and robots yeah. doing my dishes and whatever, but it's pretty incredible. It's pretty relevant to, uh, to do that. It's just like now people, you go to the doctor and it's like, I want antibiotic, give me a pill. You know, my brother is a sports medicine doctor here in New York. And I mean, in the old days of last week, when people would come for a sports medicine injury, he'd say like, yeah, maybe you don't need surgery. Maybe you can just strengthen that and strengthen your leg, strengthen your knee, and you're going to be fine. And, and half the people are pissed off. It's like, no, do something. And so right. moving to this world of prevention, it, it sounds boring, but it's actually really exciting. So that's so, one. So, so that's, yeah. wait, is that step two you said? Like, well, step one was just simply knowing knowing your future from the genes from, yeah. from birth on. And then you have to make it actionable and then it'll become actionable across life. And so whether it's healthcare, whether it's, you know, let's just say that you are uh, running a um, Olympic um, committee and let's say your, your job um, is to make sure your country wins the 100 meter sprint in the Olympics 25 years from now. And you know from the genetic analysis that, um, that you can predict who is within the range of possibility to win the 100 meter sprint. That doesn't mean you can say who's gonna win because there are lots of other factors, but it means that if you don't have the genetics to win the 100 meters, I do not have the genetics to win the 100 meters. I could grow up in Africa, I could run 50 gazillion miles to school, uphill both ways, whatever, I'm not gonna do it. I don't have the genetics for it. So there's a, there'll be a community of people who have those genetics. And if you're running that Olympic committee, then that's the, those are the people who you should consider. And if you don't consider, you're just taking a slot away and giving it to someone who's got basically almost no chance of, of winning. And so that- Oh, oh my God, you know, you, get, you just gave me a great idea, by the way, yeah. is one way you can do research on this is take a, take a, a sample of 20 runners and then give them the whole data set anonymously of all the genomes in the world. I mean, or give programmers, give betters, right. and then have people bet based on the genes all you know are the genes of the runners and the genes yeah. of society and have uh, give professionals the chance to bet or give everybody the chance yeah. to bet on these using just the genes you'll get innovations in software that will yeah. find these attributes well this is the thing this is why we were like saying before, you, you wouldn't model ai on human thinking because humans do nuts kind of thing it's like wow this is interesting maybe we can bet on it <laughs> maybe and, but, but that's like an x prize though where you, if you give yeah. people a chance to have skin in the game that's how you get true yeah, it could be. It, no, yeah, for sure i mean it for sure could be so the way it would work is is like we let's say we sequence every living human who's ever been in the finals 
in the 100-meter sprint in the Olympics. So we've got a lot of those people, and we have a lot of people who are no longer living, but we have their their blood samples or urine samples um, from when they were. So we could, at least from the modern era, when it was so competitive, when you didn't have just like a bunch of jackasses from Harvard and Yale just shipping over and everybody gets a gold medal because we have better nutrition. Um, so in the, in the modern era- Jamie Metzl and, summarizes the first 50 years of the Olympics. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then I think you will you will find like right now people focus on this ACTN three so called power gene, but they will find there there will be patterns where there will be some predictive ability. It won't be deterministic, probabilistic. And then you could say, all right, looking at at everybody born in country X, let's call it China, these are the you have to have these characteristics to just be considered for the Olympic sports school in uh, in sprinting. And it, and it won't just be genetics, but genetics will be one of those. Yeah, and it's, it, again, you know, so the, the X Prize started when, um, I guess, Peter Diamandis uh, offered, I think it was $10 million for the first group that could put a, uh, a privately made, as opposed to government made spaceship into space. And that's what I'm saying, like, Give everybody the the uh, you know as many factors as possible. Like here's yeah. all here's a billion genome sequences, and here's all the sequences of yeah. uh, the top runners in history. And go go and do something with this now. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. So um, obviously there are privacy issues of opening up these big data sets, but the United. So there are big. The name of the game now for the future of of genomics is having access to these big. Uh, not just genetic, but genetic and life uh, records. So China is building the biggest, but the United Kingdom has the best. So uh, through their genomics, uh, England, they have this thing called the UK Biobank, and it's super high quality. I mean, there are problems of bias uh, just because people are kind of, of ethnically similar, but they have this really high quality genetic and life database. And then they have standards for researchers to access that. And well, what do you mean by high quality? So it, it's high quality in the sense that like any data set, if it's messy, it's hard to use. And so like right now we have this issue in the United States where we don't have uni uh, unified electronic health records. I and mean, we have two big um, systems, uh, the Epic system and Cerner system. And then we have paper records and we have doctors who have different um, levels of, of record keeping. And so that's what we call a messy data set. But in the UK, they have a national health service. They have more standardized procedures. And so like with any data set, when it's clean, um, it's not just easier to use, but the outcome becomes more trustworthy. Okay, so so now that we can start analyzing this data, you know, China's got this data set, England's got this data set, and we're going to start allowing this, you know, scientists to access it uh, you know, what what are going to be sort of the first amazing results? Do you think that will come out of it? Like already, we are we're starting to understand these single gene mutations right. and diseases yeah. and attributes. What are what are the next set of yeah. things? And then what what's so, going to be actionable? How are we going to change our right. lives from this? Yeah, yeah. So um, first, like I was saying, we're, we're we're going to have much more predictive information. What, this what we I mentioned polygenic scoring, so predictive information about life. Um, we're going to to um, develop new kinds of and new classes of drugs because we're going to recognize correlations uh, between, at least for some of the genetic disorders, between 
uh, genetics and disease outcomes. And just a really important point, um, our, our biology, we have complex systems biology. The genetics is the underlying system. It's the blueprint for everything, but it's not the only system. So we're going to have to layer in um, other systems in this, uh, in this understanding, but we're going to have much more drugs. Um, we're going to have new interventions. Um, we're going to have direct-to-consumer genetics, which we're already starting to see through companies like 23andMe, um, but people are going to go around the healthcare system. Right now, people associate genetics and healthcare, but we don't have a, a, a healthcare genome or a disease genome. It's a human genome, and there's going to be just lots of actionable information that people are going to get on their own, not mediated uh, through the healthcare system. And then we've already entered the age of genetically engineered humans. As I mentioned, we have our first three. Um, in, in 10 years, we're going to have uh, low, probably low thousands of genetically engineered humans. And, and in and, 20 and, years, we're going to have tens of thousands. And the first three, are they like, do they have superpowers or what do they do? <laughs> well, they were supposed to have superpowers. They were the, so what, he was, what Dr. Ho was trying to do was to make this one change to give them increased resistance to HIV. And that is a superpower, just like being immunized is a, is a superpower. It doesn't look like he succeeded, um, the, that the, the data has not been shared um, and so it's really difficult to tell, but it doesn't look like he succeeded, but that it's like a tiny superpower, um, increased resistance to, to HIV. In my view, I, the reason why I've been so public calling him a villain is I don't think it was worth the risk, but someone was going to be first. And if it hadn't been him, it would have been two, three, four years from now, somebody would have done it um, to eliminate a deadly genetic disorder from a, 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 a pre-implanted embryo. But the application of this technology is only going to go up because people know about CRISPR, but there are many generations beyond the CRISPR-Cas9 system that's been around since, uh, since for eight years now, since 2002, um, prime editing, base editing, that's much more precise. So we are going um, to do these edits. And it needs to be very careful. I'm part of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. And that's what we're working on to say, well, what are the, the regulatory and ethical guidelines that can help us use this technology wisely and, and, and responsibly? Yeah, and so, so uh, just, to, just to point out, CRISPR is this tool for essentially cutting into a gene, maybe removing a bad sequence or whatever you call it in the gene and replacing it with a new one. That's what this guy tried to do on the genes he felt were related to HIV resistance. Yeah, exactly right. And that's one of the other things. When we talk about exponential J curve, whatever the whatever the philosophical origins of the of the word, um, it's pretty incredible. Like when you think of all of these technologies, what was the time when somebody figured out something that began a process and the major applications of that technology? So in 2012. Um, the scientists, Jennifer Doudna and, and Emmanuel Charpentier and others, they came out with this really important paper about this CRISPR-Cas9 system, imagining how it could work and it could work on small cells in a lab. That was 2012. Six years later, 2018, the world's first CRISPR babies are born. So six years from a scientific concept in an academic paper to the first babies being born. And that's when we talk about the J-curve of technological change across the board. That's what we, what we mean. We have 
this sense in our minds for just basically the way our brains are structured of how change happens, the pace of change. Uh, and that, as we're on this J curve, there's a dissonance, there's a disconnect between how fast we think things are going to change and how fast they are going to, to change. And, and so let's just explain that like a J curve obviously starts high or a J starts high, goes low, and then goes straight up. So, so well, that, so you know, with this, that's a, more of a U curve. Mm -hmm. What this is, it just it's like doubling your pennies. You have one penny, two pennies. So it kind of starts low, and then it goes up because the U curves, like what you're talking about, the kind of uncanny valley um, with AI. That was like there was all this excitement. Yeah. You kind of look at excitement. It kind of went down, and then it went up, and it went up even bigger. And that that's kind of like a real a real J, like the J in my first name. But when people talk about this, and maybe um, uh, Jervitson was like laying on his back when he when he came up with this, but it's like you you, you kind of start out with something that almost looks like a straight line, and then it starts to go up, and then the arc of that upturn starts to to go up and up, and that that's what conventionally is the J. But I think I'm sure there's different kinds of J's. So so okay so so preventative. Uh, healthcare, you know that somebody's going to have XYZ attributes. So let's just edit the genes in the embryo. And now we prevent that. That's kind of like, first there's knowing what they're going to potentially have. And then you yeah. could kind of structure their lifestyle accordingly. Then there's actually preventing uh, by doing some gene editing. What's, yeah. what's another thing in the next 10 years? So in terms of applications to humans, those are the three big ones I see changing the way that we do healthcare. Um, having genetics go outside of uh, of healthcare and editing our uh, our babies to have at the beginning of this process of uh, either to prevent harms or to create benefits and there won't be any kind of real line between those uh, those two things. So I, those are the kind of the the big three, at least in the human applications of genetic technologies. But then there's a whole other field in genetics of synthetic biology it's not being applied to humans. And that is going to absolutely take off. We're going to fundamentally transform the way we think about how just how things are made, manufacturing. Right now, there are things that in the old days, um, if you wanted, if you're a perfume company, um, you would go, you'd hire you know, somebody with a farm in Egypt to or someplace to kind of grow a bunch of flowers. And then there was a whole process. We had all these people who were involved in this process of extracting the essence of these flowers. Maybe some people have read this wonderful um, Patrick Susskind book, Perfume, about, I mean, it's a, a great story about that. But now in the, in the era of synthetic biology, we say, oh, well, what is, what is that scent? And where is that scent coming from? And so there are companies like, you know, like Ginkgo Bioworks um, in Cambridge, Mass., and they're saying, well, we can recreate that scent, but not from a flower. We're going to re-engineer bacteria or algae to give that scent because that scent, it's not just coming from the heavens, it's coming from the genetic code of those flowers. And so many of the things that we experience in our life, so many of the products can be made in other ways. Insulin, this has been for, for years, Insulin used to come from cows and pigs, and now it's, it's synthetically generated. It used to be from um, uh, tobacco, and now it's, it's from uh, bacteria and algae. And so 
um, we're going to change the way that we that we make things. And you just, you know, I say, it's like you just go to your local supermarket, just put on a blindfold, twist around in a circle with your finger out, and you're going to, when you stop and take off the blindfold, you're going to be pointing at something. That thing, if you look at the product, many of the ingredients in that product, whatever it is, are going to shift from our semi-natural processes we have now um, to syn- uh, synthetic biology. But, so but we, that, yeah. that doesn't actually change my life in any way. Like when I buy yeah. a watermelon, for instance, it could either be born and raised or whatever in a watermelon yeah. farm. Or I don't even know yeah. how watermelons are made. That's how disconnected the average <laughs> no, person is from, from no, food. They're made, they're made at, at, at Whole Foods down yeah, the street. That, that could be. Like for me, in the, or it could be like genetically modified and there's all sorts yeah. of arguments about you yeah. know, genetically modified foods. But so I don't really care about those issues that much, although I appreciate that's a step on the way. How will humans uh, be synthetically changed or modified and there's there's i guess there's the aspects of what do you modify before birth in the embryo yeah. when it's a little bit easier there's fewer yeah. cells that you have to change and what yeah. can you modify later on so so james the reason why i'm being a little conservative now is you've hemmed me in with this 10-year thing so if right, i can 20 years. If, if i can, can jump so here are the problem here are the problems with humans um we are buggy it's the nature of evolution um, that that nevo- uh, that evolution is always throwing up variation, and so and the reason why we're all different, the reason why biology didn't make us all exact clones of each other, is that if that happened and the environment changed, we may have been well suited for the old environment, but we're not suited for the new environment, and then we're dead, and that's that's essentially what happened to most of the dino- of the dinosaurs. So every one of us is a new model. And if every one of us was a better model than the old model for the world either now or the world that's that's coming, it wouldn't work. It would actually harm us. So every mutation, basically every difference is either better, worse, or neutral from an evolutionary standpoint. And so right now, when some people have these worse mutations that are worse in the context of today, that's what translates into things that we call disease, whether genetic disease or other, other, other kinds of diseases and, and all these kinds of things, low IQ, things that, that are actually pretty harmful uh, to people, even though we have to love equally everybody, who, who, uh, whoever they are. Um, so we already have this buggy biology. We already know um, that, our wor- that our world, our climate is warming and maybe we'll slow it down because no one's traveling anymore. But our climate is, um, uh, is warming. Um, we know that our planet is going to become unlivable for humans. We know that if our species wants to survive, and I hope we do, all of my best friends are, are humans, um, <laughs> that we have to leave this planet. Like we can't stay. And some of us sooner than rather than later are going to be those pioneers living in space their whole lives. But we don't have a biology that's designed for that. I mean, if if we had a different biology, you wouldn't need scuba gear when you went diving. You'd just be like a dolphin. You kind of go down and 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 you're cool. We don't have that biology. We don't have the biology to live long term in space, even in our, our our spaceships. So we're probably gonna need to engineer ourselves for those future environments. And when we do, we're always evolving. And when we do, when we go and colonize these other places, they're the same processes are going to uh, to apply. So 
we are heading to a very, very different place. People, we, we kind of have this, this connectivity to this form, this life, being Homo sapiens, but Homo sapiens, it's only around 300,000 years of our almost 4 billion year evolutionary history. We've been this and we're not staying this and we're going to become other things. Well, okay, so what are, like, before we get to space and between now and then, we're probably gonna be able to do things with genetics that yeah. will seem amazing and incredible here yes. on Earth. Like, will we engineer someone who has X-ray vision or, you yeah. know? Uh, and, and the answer is probably, yeah, but I don't know if X-ray vision, but um, we're going, so right now, there's a range of human capacities. And so we know, like there's the highest IQ person in the world, the person with the greatest vision, the person who can hold their breath the longest, all those kinds of things, the person who could live the longest. We know those are the possible parameters of humanness as we know it. And we will be able over time to engineer more of us if we choose to, to be kind of like those human extremes. We will also be able to introduce new traits either that are just, that we maybe learned um, from animal models of how, or maybe from non-animal models. And we'll also co-evolve. We've talked about biology, but biology and technology co-evolve with each other. And so um, we're going to have, so like me, me and my smartphone are smarter than Stephen Hawking with on his own. I mean, all of us uh, And so the, so like our technology is part of us and it's, it's all, it's for many thousands of years, it's changed our evolutionary history. We've co-evolved with fire. We've co-evolved, um, with, with cows and domesticated cows and, 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 and drinking milk. Um, we've co-evolved with mountains even and our ability to, because you live in these mountain mountainous regions, you have the technology of just houses and clothes to not die. And then you evolve the genetics of living at those, at those, uh, at those heights. And that's going to continue. And so there's, it's going to be this rapid co-evolution process. Um, and we're not going to be able to really figure out where humans end and technology so, begins. So where do you see some of the first features that um, we evolve synthetically through genetic yeah, so, gene editing? Yeah, and even the word synthetically, it's like, well, geez, what's synthetic? Is co-evolving with fire synthetic? But but I do think that we are going to, that, that right now, you know, you see these pictures of our parents and you say, oh, look at those hairstyle sideburns and, and whatever, like that was so retro. I do think that, that right now we have some technologies that are outside of us, like our iPhones. And we have some technologies that are inside of us, like our cochlear implants and pacemakers. And more of, our, of the technology is going to come inside of us. Um, it's going to be part of us. And maybe it's not part of us in the sense that you can take it out, but you can also take out your wisdom teeth and that, that doesn't make them not, not, uh, not part of us. So, so I think it's, it's going to be this, this, this process, you know, quote unquote synthetic, we'll just call it human. Um, and that will include um, uh, genetic engineering, future generations, and it will include um, this complex relationship with our evolving uh, technology, which is just going to get better and better. I mean, our bio, it's gonna be hard to make quantum jumps in our own biology, unless something crazy happens. And that's, you have know, 90% of the, of the human population 
dies from some deadly pathogen. That's kind of like the equivalent of, of the asteroid for the, the dinosaurs. Um, <clears throat> but if it's the more likely outcomes, we're going to, it's going to be more evolutionary. Um, but it's going to be continuous because even if our biology, you know, if I had to guess what percentage will our bi collective biology be different uh, 100 years from now than today, I think it would be a, just a really very, very small uh, percentage. But, but, what, but our technology is going to be radically different and there'll be an, a complex interplay between those two things. So what will change? Like what will, if we could see 10, 20, 30 years from now, what will be will we be astonished by when we see what, what gene therapy or gene editing or gene sequencing yeah. has done? So we're gonna, so right now we have a lot of things that we call fate. And um, we're, a lot of those things that, and, and the things that, we once called fate like polio or whatever. Now we just call accidents. So a lot of things that we call fate, we're going to call accidents. Um, it's frightening for people to think that, well, if you, you know, everybody's parents said you can be anything that you want to be. They were lying. Like my parents, I mean, if they had been stupid enough to tell me if you want to win the 100 meters uh, sprint in the Olympics, you can do it because now it's, yeah, just turn on the television. You know, how many Ashkenazi Jews from Kansas City are winning the 100 meters sprint? And so I think that we're going to have, we're going to have, it's not determinism, but we're going to have a lot of information about our range of possibilities. And that's going to scare people because it feels like Plato's Republic in some ways. But how many, I write about this in the book, how many people in, um, refugee camps have the genetic capacity to be Einstein's. And we just don't know how many people in our slums around the world have these amazing capacities. And we're just throwing those people away. And that's, and, and we're going to have this information. It's going to change the way we think about identity, the way that we think about life, the way we think about a lot of things. So, okay. Give me, Give me specifics. I keep, feel like you're circling around the specifics and you're yeah. creating this worldview yeah. that's crazy. I'm also a novelist so people can read my novels, which I are know. very Well, you're, you're, you're very, I mean, aside from this discussion, you're all, I mean, not, not aside from it, but a tangent to it <laughs> is, uh, uh, you're, you're very interesting in that you, you worked in the government, you had a different sort of education, but you self-taught yourself to become one of the world's yeah. experts on genetic engineering. You're not a doctor. You, yeah. you became a novelist and a science fiction novelist. So you're really great at kind of taking several different areas, building great skill sets in several different areas of life and combining them in unique ways to catapult you to be among the top in the world in a field that you don't have formal education. You're sort of proof of the theory that uh, of a lot of different theories about learning and success and so on. But uh, I, I do want to hear what's, what's amazing. What's coming. Cause there are so many amazing yeah. things that I know, you know, I know, you I, know have but I feel like the key. things I've said are so amazing that, that, that they sound boring. It's like, we're going to get rid of cancer. We're not going to die of these terrible well, diseases. I, we're going to give ourselves additional capacities and whether it's to maybe have higher IQs or whatever, whatever it is people want. And we have to be very careful because all those things will exist within a social context of something that seems good in one, in one environment may not be good in another, but we're going to do it anyway because we're this kind of crazy hubristic species. We're going to be colonizing space. We're going to have, have people who are going to be living their whole lives in things, equivalents of, uh, of the, of the space station. We're going to be 
creating food in fundamentally uh, different ways. We're going to have um, different modes of social interaction so, so, uh, that are, yeah. So, so okay. So we, we, you're saying we can basically, instead of vaccines later on in life or cures even later on in life, uh, potentially gene gene sequencing and, and, and data analysis can say, oh, this person's likely to get polio. Let's just edit these th five or six genes and now they won't get polio. So yeah, gonna well, be we don't need polio because polio is already cured, but for, for all sorts of things, and that'll happen when you're taking your newborn home from the hospital, you're going to get a little readout of threats and possibilities. And right now that would freak people out because you were taking your kid home from the hospital and the doctor says, hey, just FYI, your kid has a 50% greater than average chance of developing early onset familial Alzheimer's. You say like, how dare you tell me this? Um, by the way, that's a single gene mutation, I believe. Well, it's, it's, it depends, but- um, so, but, but that we're going to demand that Yeah, we're going to demand that. And, and so, and so we're going to think differently about identity, uh, about life, about parenting. And it's scary because it's, it's a very different world. So immunity is, is one, uh, thing that we're going to be able to right. quote unquote solve with, with gene therapy. And then you're saying there might be attributes like IQ or the speed by which you run, or what other attributes yeah. do you think will be easily conquered? Because I sort of see once this really opens up, there's going to be a billion people working on each attribute and and figuring out the the the, the genes to be edited to to correct or or improve that attribute. Yeah. So I think it'll it'll be uh, embryo selection more than editing because when in at least in the early phases for you know small number of uh, of decades and just in the sense that step one is selecting embryos based on this knowledge, because then when you're editing, you can't make that, at least for now, that many changes. It, it can't be like you make, you know, a hundred or a thousand changes. I mean, right now we're talking at least for now about one or, or maybe two people like George Church, who's incredible, are talking about big changes, but I think that's a little bit further away. So um, first it's embryo selection. And so now the average woman going through IVF has about 15 eggs extracted. Um, but using stem cell technologies, you could just change the way we're extracting eggs rather than doing it through stimulating and, and extracting the eggs. You could just take a skin graft with millions of cells, induce those skin cells into stem cells, stem cells into egg precursor cells, egg precursor cells into eggs. And now you have, let's call it a million eggs fertilize them with male sperm and almost it can be over a billion sperm cells in average male ejaculation. And I'm sure that you and your listeners have many billions. Um, but, and then- Less and less each day, according to <laughs> me research. Too. <laughs> me too, me too. Um, and um, so then let's say you have 10,000 fertilized eggs and you're selecting from those 10,000. Like that's a really powerful driver of evolutionary change because- that's a much more effective and efficient way to pick your highest IQ, tallest, most outgoing, um, fastest runner by choosing from among those 10,000 than it is by starting with 10, picking one, and then just doing the incredibly complex and, and maybe not possible for centuries job of rejiggering their entire complexity of the, of the genome. Because that's you know, our understanding of the complexity of human biology is still in its in its infancy, and so our ability to select 
with some kind of informed best guess is much more powerful than our ability to rewrite. But having so, said that, mm -hmm. well, let me just one quick thing. I am um, a member of what's called the human, uh, it's, now it's actually called Genome Project Write Consortium. And this is an effort to build an entire human genome from the ground up. And again, it, it's gonna take a century maybe to do this, but so right now in the world of synthetic biology, they've created the world's first synthetic cells. And what they've done is just, they have like a regular cell, a regular bacteria, and they just start swapping out little genome sequences, like the natural one um, with a synthetic one. And so it's just like little by little, you kind of take a little piece of the natural, add a little piece of the synthetic. And so they've been able to make a, like a single synthetic cell. So there's a long way from a single cell to an entire genome with all of its complexity and all of its chromosomes, but it's like it's the building block. So 200 years from now, would it be possible, will it be possible for us to think more synthetically and more systematically about what it means to create a, a, a human? Yeah, because you're sort of saying yeah. you could almost separate the process of, you know, right now, obviously, two people fall in love, they have sex, they have mm. kids, and it's all- No, no, sex, sex for kids, like that, you talk about changes, 20 years from now, that whole thing, oh, we fell in love, we had sex, we conceived through sex and we had a kid. Like that'll be, I think, the equivalent of when you meet somebody and they say, oh yeah, you know, um, I don't think these immunizations are natural. I've decided not to immunize my, my kid. And you'd have to say, that's certainly natural, but why, do, why would you confer that unnecessary risk on your kids? Right, and so what you're saying is, potentially humans will go on living their lives. And then in these big giant warehouse laboratories, there'll be billions of eggs and sperm cells, you know, or sperm created by stem cells, re-engineered to be either eggs or sperm. And then we'll combine them, create all these babies, abort the ones that, you know, we'll rank them according to different attributes, get rid of the well, ones. You don't, you don't need to abort because you can just select when they're pre-implanted embryos, because that's the whole name of the game. Right. Like right now you could just, and people are doing it when there's a diagnosis of certain chromosomal abnormalities and other, and, and other things, but that's actually a very painful thing to do. So when the selection happens at the stage of pre-implanted embryo, then the idea of applying this kind of science is more comfortable than when there is, I mean, whatever your politics on, on abortion, it's a much bigger deal um, to decide to terminate a pregnancy than it is to say, well, you have 10 embryos in a lab and you have to pick one for implantation. What about like after someone's, like let's say you and me, let's say we want to change an attribute that we have. Like let's say I want to be smarter or I want to be faster mm -hmm. or I want to live longer and we figure out the genes associated with that. Mm -hmm. Can I have... Uh, do you think within 10, 20, 30 years, can I have the some gene of that. editing? Some of that. So, so whether it's gene editing or gene therapy, I think gene therapy is maybe a, a little bit more likely because what, does that mean? what are What's our genes difference? doing? So our genes are instructing our cells to make proteins. That's, that's kind of how, it, um, how it, it works. So once we understand what the genes are doing, one thing is to change the genes but as you become an adult with all of your genetic complexity and all of your mutations, because you, you start out 
um, with it and and omnipotent gene, like so, a cell. Your first, your your uh, when your father's sperm fertilizes your mother's egg, the entire blueprint of you is in that one cell. But your cells start to specialize as you grow, and that's why we're not just one blob of the same kind of cell. We have our skin cells and our heart cells and our blood cells and all the different kinds of, uh, of cells. So it's going to be hard to kind of change everything, but we know our cells, our, our genes are doing something. They're instructing our cells to make proteins. So once we know that, we can kind of hijack the system by saying, all right, well, how can we introduce either different messages through the RNA, which is kind of the messenger from the genes to the cells, um, or manufacture these these proteins and deliver them uh, directly. So there are going to be a lot of different hacks. There'll be, I think, the the gene editing will be most effective very early on. Or if there's a specific cell that's causing a problem, which is the reason why for the gene therapies now it's really it's blood problems, eye problems, and liver problems is that those are the easiest places in the body to deliver these, these, uh, these therapies. So I think they're going to be a range of hacks. And what we're going to want to do, it won't be that the gene editing or gene therapy is the right response to everything, but we'll say, all right, well, what do we want to do? And what's the process for doing it? You mentioned polio. Like we don't need to gene edit for polio because um, we, we have a, a complete way to eradicate uh, polio. But there may be other things where the, for this, like a single deadly single gene mutation disorder, well, we need to intervene early on with gene editing. But there may be some other thing like aging where we find other ways of, uh, of intervening by looking at what cells are doing. And I have, you know, I have lots of friends and I write about this in, in Hacking Darwin, but well, what are those kinds of interventions? So we want, we want to build up our toolkit of all of the different interventions. Uh, genome editing will be one incredibly powerful tool, but it won't be the only one. And you know, it's interesting because you mentioned uh, two attributes earlier. One was running fast, like running the 100 mm -hmm. meter run, and the other is IQ. And it might be the case that we discover some things we thought were attributes are just fictions. So intelligence yeah. might be a fiction. We know we can measure easily whether you could run faster than me. We just run and whoever wins, yeah. you know, yeah. is, is, is faster, has a, a faster either. And again, let's right. say it's 50% nature, 50% nurture. You could somehow figure out how to measure nurture mm -hmm. and say, okay, just by genetics, this person's faster than this person. IQ might turn out to be a fiction. Like somebody might be smart in one area, another person yeah. might be smart in we, another we, area. We know that to be true. Um, but we also have standard definitions of a certain kind of intelligence. And it's a certain kind of intelligence that we, um, in our world today, tend to value. That doesn't mean it's the only way because if the world changed, I mean, we're here in New York, um, Just let's just imagine that everything breaks down over the next few months. We have no police, no fire, medical thing isn't working, and everybody's for themselves. I mean, that you and I are, are kind of, I mean, I, I hate to use this word, but we're kind of these public intellectuals having these wonderful conversations. It could be that the people who know like the, the snake Pliskins of the world, and I hope that, that the escape from New York skills will be the essential skills and kind of world philosophers like you and me 
will just be um, as uh, in the the uh, Mel Brooks movie um, History of the World, where he's asked for <laughs> it's the Roman Empire, and he's asked for what's your job, and he says he's uh, Mel Brooks says I'm a stand-up philosopher, and the person says oh a bullshit artist, <laughs> like it could be that this skill which has brought both you and 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 me whatever you know certain amount of of enjoyment and success and whatever it could be totally useless and these kind of survival skills and then if if the world reforms based on that and they say all right we're going to do genetic tests uh, to figure out who has these the fire building skills and the ability to do whatever needs to be done it may be that there's some some different mix of things but having said that what we call these uh, these intelligence tests do correlate across the test. So there've been lots of different tests, but if the people who tend to high, score highly on one um, score highly on all of them. That doesn't mean there's not all kinds of culture and whatever, but people have this thing, oh, an IQ test, uh, it's like the, you, know, the, you go for the test and it's like, you know, Penfeld is having dinner with his best china. Um, does the fork go on the left or, for, or the fork go on the right? And it's not that, it's, it's looking at kind of spatial skills of like how different forms fit together. There's a lot of, of different things that go in, into so, this. So, so it's, yeah, no, go ahead. So, so potentially, let's say those spatial skills, which are important for music, math, yeah. so many other things, uh, potentially those are a set of genes and we'll figure yeah. those out and, and that the technology is already kind of there for that. And then, like you're saying, we can create these million embryos, rank them according to that gene and then implant the ones that are gonna create the children with the highest uh, spatial recognition ability. Yeah, and, but you know, biology is a trade-off. So we'll have to say, well, I had a piece uh, last year in the, uh, in the New York Times on this, imagining going into a fertility clinic in the year 2045. And it's like, it's biology is this trade-off. And so you, you won't be able, if you're not building a kid from scratch, you're not gonna be able just to pick all the attributes, but we'll have to prioritize. And maybe people will say, my highest priority is health. I don't want a kid who's going to die of some early of some you know per, terrible, painful disorder. I also value longevity. I want a kid who's going to have a healthy, long life. And then after that, you you know they'll be in places where it's legal, um, and based on social norms and and philosophies and parental beliefs, there will be choices. And, and the danger yeah. is if uh, let's say we don't do this because we have ethical qualms, and I'm not arguing whether or not we should or not right. have those, but potentially a country that doesn't have those qualms, like China, can just start, you know, next year, start ranking their embryos and create yeah. at least 100 million of their two, 2 billion will have extra special yeah. spatial, you know, abilities for, for, for yeah. the STEM well, sciences. So, so I write about that in my novel, Genesis Code. That's the basic underlying premise of, of the book. And so here's, here's how I would do it. Let's just say that I was um, a dictator of some country and I wanted to use these, um, uh, these technologies to optimize my competitiveness. And let's just say um, that I had read Plato's Republic and I, and I kind of liked that, that philosophy. And that wouldn't necessarily be me, but here's, here's what I would do. I would say we're going to sequence every newborn in the country. And we're going to identify, well, what are the core capabilities that we think are important for our future success as a country? And it may be that we need 
you know, great scientists, mathematicians, athletes, musicians, business leaders, government leaders, whatever. Based on the, the, the billions of sequence genomes, we'll have some predictive ability to say, all right, we think these kinds of people with, with these kinds of genetic patterns are more likely than others to be fantastic abstract mathematicians. And so we're going to put a little tag on those people's, um, uh, on their records, because this is a totalitarian state and everybody is, is tracked uh, um, with technology. And if their kindergarten, early stage teachers say, yeah, it looks like um, this kid has special capacity in this designated area, well, then when that kid is like third, fourth grade, we're going to move them from their school um, to this specialized school um, that is focusing in on those areas. So now you have all these kids who were identified by their genetics. They were identified by their, their teachers. And now you have all these kids who are in the abstract math school. And they're, say, now they're fourth or, 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 or fifth graders. And then you, have, you start weeding them out because some of them, they, they were okay. They, 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 some of them were lazy. Some of them weren't as good as they thought. You know, some of them, whatever. And you just start narrowing it down. And eventually, at each level, you start narrowing. Eventually, you have all of these people who are in these roles that they had a genetic capacity for, but they've been, they've been trained specially since they were in the, the third, or fourth, uh, third or fourth grade. I mean, that's not a crazy way to organize. And so in our system, you know, we have all of these people and, and sometimes there's a perfect match between somebody's genetic and, and inherent capacity and their environment. I mean, Mozart is the best case. I mean, he had this unbelievable natural talent, but he happened to be born in the Habsburg court. Had he been born, whatever, you know, a mile away, you know, it would have been, oh yeah, Mozart, that guy makes great pastries. And so like, we're going to be able to do this matching. It's going to feel authoritarian, totalitarian, diminishing to many people. And some societies will say, we don't want to do it. And it may be the, the outcome is better for not doing it. It could be that just the passion of letting people find their own course um, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that, but we have a lot of people who are phenomenal, abstract mathematicians, Nobel level potential scientists in our prisons. You, you think? Because they, because they were just people born in shitty school districts, um, who didn't get attention, who weren't recognized, who didn't, and who maybe didn't have, um, uh, the, the ability to do other things. And so they just kind of wound up in, in these places. So I'm not saying I want to live in this authoritarian Plato's Republic world, but I think we, we can't just re reject it out of hand without being self-critical about the loss, in some cases, waste of human potential that we have in our system. So, so the first thing is, so, you know, using our understanding of geno gene sequences to do selection uh, at, right. at the embryo stage. Then there right. might be some modification like, um, but that's later on where, okay, we're yeah, going right. to change this gene and this gene and this gene. Yep. Now everyone's going to have higher IQ and right. there wasn't a trade-off. It's just now we all have, have, are healthier, we have higher IQ, whatever. And then later on, there might be specifically 
changing genes for very specific purposes. And that's where I guess it could get scarier because you could say, yeah. make someone have zero intelligence, but they're good at X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And that's when you get into or, the scary yeah. situation. Or maybe we'll find that there's a small number of genes um, that that can modulate you know, people's level of, of aggression or non-aggression or ability or willingness to follow orders. Could you imagine some totalitarian state saying um, that, we're, that we have a certain class of people, which is certainly the case now in, in North Korea, where there's a, just a class of people who have no access to everything and the whole the society is organized about keeping most of the population down to support a tiny percentage of the population who support the the ruling regime? You know, could genetic engineering be used for, for those purposes? It, it could, and that's the, kind of the basic point. I mean, that's why I do the work that I do. Is that there are many people, and and it's a kind of a Silicon Valley view in many cases, who think that well, this technology is going to save us. It's the technology of liberation. And what I say is the technology is is value neutral. It doesn't come with its own built-in value system. It's up to us to apply our best values to guide these technologies because these same technologies can be used to help us or to hurt us. I mean, we talk about all these great applications of genetic, uh, ge uh, genetic technology, but it could just as easily be used to hurt or kill us. Yeah, and, and you know, you've got to assume that some uh, countries or leaders will use them for the worst purposes. So we almost, yeah. unfortunately, you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset of both ethical and the non-ethical or the unethical yeah, yes. to, to, yes. to figure this out and how to Absolutely. combat it. You know, and also like, look, we're in the middle of this lockdown for a pandemic, potentially gene editing. You can imagine taking a an obscure bat cold and modifying it to, so that it's lethal for humans when previously it wasn't. And that's you know, so there was, a, there was a paper that came out uh, two days ago in, in the journal Nature where they did an analysis of this uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, so the coronavirus, uh, uh, um, uh, the coronavirus, and they came to the conclusion uh, that it was not uh, genetically engineered, genetically altered, and the reason was because it was so inefficient at killing people, and that they had decided that if somebody was had been developing this virus with the technology that now exists with the goal of wreaking havoc and killing as many people as possible, they wouldn't have done such a bad job as this virus. And given that this virus is shutting down the world and is about to kill, unfortunately, a lot of many, many thousands of, of people, like what happens, not if, but when those kinds of, uh, of viruses exist. And that's why now in the height of this crisis, we really, and I'm spending a huge percentage of my energy now trying to say we need to think about not just how do we respond to the crisis at hand, but how do we build a better, safer world for after this crisis? How, how do this, you? So we talked about in the beginning, I think this year is kind of like 2001. It's kind of like uh, 2008, but it's more like 1941. And so in 1941, the war was raging in Europe. Uh, the US wasn't in the war until the end of the year after uh, Pearl Harbor. The allies were, we weren't yet the allies, but we were losing. I mean, our side 
was on its heels and it was by no means certain that the outcome would be as it eventually became. I mean, the, the Germans and the Japanese were winning in 1941. But even at that moment, Churchill and FDR and a small number of others came together and said, we have to articulate not just what we're fighting for, but the, how we want the world to look when the deck of life is reshuffled. And I think that's where, where we are now. And so we need to start thinking. And again, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working around the clock on this. We need to start thinking, well, what is that world that we want to live in? Because we know that our governments have failed us, to quote my, my good friend and, and former boss, Richard Clark. Our government has, governments have failed us and they've failed us by not addressing these big global common challenges that we know that we face. And so we can't go back to saying, all right, well, all right, governments, now you fix it because they've proven totally incapable of doing it. And especially over recent years have gone in the opposite way rather than strengthening our mechanisms of collective action like the United Nations. We were renationalizing the world. We're attacking these mechanisms of collective action like like the UN, like the EU and and And, and maybe what, correctly and because it's not clear that they were totally effective either. Like maybe you're well, saying they could have gotten is, better. Yeah, so the thing is, I would say it's it's wrong to attack them based on nationalism. It's right to say these organizations have an incredibly important role to play. How can we make them more effective? But you know, organization like the World Health Organization has been totally undermined by states. The UN has been totally undermined by well, states, and the United and the US, which was the champion, has now under under this president at least um, been undermining these organizations. And it turns out we really need the World Health Organization. We really need organizations like the the uh, uh, um, Human Rights um, uh, Commission not the Human Rights Commission, the, the Human Rights Agency, um, the Refugee Agency. Um, these are really, really important. And rather than undermine them, we need to fix them. And this is this is what's, you know, again, I think a big lesson from observing you is that you have tr taught yourself in so many different disciplines. You could say the same, you could start to say, well, the same issues that are, we're going to deal with in terms of genetic engineering we're already dealing with in various levels of uh, a society that's becoming both increasingly global in terms of the economics, but increasingly nationalist in terms of how we view our political identities. We're having this strange kind of dissonance. But what about something like Rwanda, where the UN certainly was empowered to go in and solve something that was very quickly a genocide, and the UN just didn't? And so what I'm, what I'm asking, the yeah. bigger question is, are there structures other than political structures that might be appropriate? So more decentralized yeah. structures where there isn't yeah. a central authority. Two, two really great questions. Um, um, so first on Rwanda, and I uh, earlier in life at the time of the genocide, I actually was doing a lot of work on Rwanda. And your listeners, if they want, can go to my jamiemetzel.com website and read that uh, some things in in foreign affairs and other about why we failed in, um, in Rwanda. And it was not the case that the UN was empowered to do something and didn't do it. The case, it was that the countries, including the United States, prevented the UN from acting. Um, 
And there, there are complex reasons for it. So even at that time, I was saying, no, this is crazy. Here's what we, what we should be doing. And, and so it was a failure of collective action. And I certainly believe that we need to reinvigorate. And I talked about 1941 and the number of people who mapped out the future of the world in 1941, it's a tiny number of people. I'm a member, I mean, I'm sure that people, some people get scared, but I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. We have our little black helicopter tours. But when you go to CFR and you're just in kind of the, one of the, the main conference rooms and you just look around and there are all these paintings of you know, now, like we used to call them heroes. Now people just call them um, um, old dead white guys, uh, which is really unfortunate because these white guys saved the in, entire world. But we don't have a committee like that anymore. Who, we don't who's have- all, Who's painted? Who's on the wall? You know, it's, it's people like uh, Chip Bolin and Dean Acheson and just kind of all these really smart, wise guys. There was a New York, DC axis and they literally saved the entire world. Um, small number of people. We don't have that anymore. Like we don't have, we have people who could do that, but are, we are not organized. So just this morning, um, th I guess this is the official launch, even though it hasn't even launched. I was drafting uh, what I'm calling um, the Declaration of Global Interdependence. And what this means is that just as we had these small number of people articulating the principles that we were going to fight for and that we were going to rebuild the world around in the aftermath of the crisis, now we need a process that's doing the exact same thing but it can't be a few small number of a small number of people in little rooms in Washington, New York, or London. It has to be everybody in a bottom-up process. And so, what I'm going to be doing um, is is open sourcing the ability first, like using a Wikipedia-like model, to edit the declaration. So, just starting from the very, very beginning, we need a process of upvoting. Um, terms and figuring out what's the language. Um, and then to say, all right, how do, we, how do we build this? And we build it, what we used to call brick by brick, now we call it bit by bit, um, whatever it is, one step at a time. And it may be, how can we build collective systems to respond better and uh, internationally to this crisis, whether it's by sharing information, sharing best practices, sharing resources. I mean, we live in a world where we have a global virus and all of our borders, our national borders are going up. And there's some very good reasons um, uh, for that. But, we, but why is that? I mean, we really need to say, well, how do, we, how, do we, how do we win? Not just how do we keep the other guys out because everybody who's building a wall, I mean, it's just, we talked about the diversity of biology. Some of the people who are building these walls are gonna find out they're on the wrong side. I'll use bad language here. They're gonna find out they're on the wrong side of the fucking wall. It seemed like, if you're in the middle ages, it seemed like a good idea to build a really big wall because you were afraid that, that bad guys were gonna come in and take over your city and, and take your shit. Um, but then they had the Black Plague and the worst thing you could be was in, be in one of these walled cities where everybody was dying. And the best thing you could have done is knock down those walls and, and disperse yourself. And so we're building all these walls. It's not clear to me that everyone who's building a wall 
is going to want to stay within. And then we're going to have problems like migrations, refugee flows and whatever. And if people are panicked and they fear um, that if they stay, they're going to die from some you know, deadly disease, they're going to do what it takes to get where they're going. And no wall, I mean, maybe some wall, but most walls aren't going to keep those people out. And so the thing is, all right, we're, if the model is screw you, rest of the world, we're going to fix our problem. The problem of the rest of the world is our problem. And that's, there's this total mismatch between what we need to solve our global problems and how we're organized to do so. Yeah, it's, it's you have an interesting task ahead of you because take a look at something like Brexit, you know, England leaving the EU. Now, when this was first voted on, it was considered this very nationalistic, you know, almost some people called it racist, some people called it fascist, uh, you know, people who were looking, who were outside looking in on, on Britain's decision that they made at the polls. On the other hand, from an economic point of view, the, the British could say, well, why are we paying the debt of Greece? We're just, we just want to focus on our own economy that we've built up over a thousand years and not have right. to deal with 27 yeah. other economies. So, so it's, so it's a complicated, yeah. you know, the world is, is a complicated mechanism, almost like the, the human body is. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then you look at other types of organizing a billion people. So yeah. for instance, Facebook has 2 billion members and I can log on to Facebook and talk to friends that I've met who live in Malaysia, but I don't even realize that because we're just friends on Facebook. And that seems right. like this, this virtual country yeah. almost, this, this yeah. more globalized entity than any one country is. And so who knows, yeah. maybe these structures themselves will have to change. No, I do. But it, so you talk about Facebook and this global connectivity, I'll connect that to my point, that it's a political group. And, and, yeah. and, but we're not organized to have political power other than a bunch of people send emails. So I think we need to organize ourselves not to supplant the world of countries and, and the U, and, and UN, but to augment it because this kind of collective, and we have to be very careful of what the, that collective is and whether it's just, it can't be just people who are super digitally literate. Um, but there needs to be, a, there is a new locus of connectivity it hasn't translated into a locus of power. So you have people who are connected to each other, but the, the unit of organization are these increasingly, in many cases, nationalistic governments. And there's a mismatch. So we have to build the political infrastructure of communal identity. Let me ask you a question, which, which I always wonder about. And this could be related to, like you mentioned earlier, you don't have kids. I have kids. I have a family. Yeah. So having a family and being a little bit older, uh, we're around the same age, but uh, yeah. maybe I'm a tiny bit older. I don't know. And uh, but you I, look great. <laughs> I feel I feel like my incentive is to keep the status quo. Now that I have kids, I don't like mm. big change. I have a natural inclination yeah. for for not huge change because I don't want my you know, I don't want the uncertainty to affect right. my kids. Perhaps that's the reason, or maybe I'm just scared of change myself. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I sort of wonder when you say this, like, why why care so much? Like, we're going to live in the world we live in. The world sort of evolves on its own path, and it's hard for us to yeah. change it. And I sort of teach myself and my kids and and hopefully to some extent my listeners or whatever that there's other ways to deal with the world than changing it. There's investing in yourself so that much how you have to learn many skills 
there's ways to invest in yourself so that you could better deal with a world where change is out of our control. And you're sort of suggesting yeah. maybe change is not out of our control. The way yeah. the way yes. that we could genetically engineer so the human evolution is not out of our control. Yeah, so it is my belief, and it could just be hubris, um, because when you look at at some bee colony, you don't say, "Wow, that that one bee, look at look at the change that that they're having." But it's probably true, from at least from uh, uh, E.O. Wilson perspective. Um, but I believe that individuals make a difference, and even if it's not true, believing that we can gives us purpose in our lives. I mean, Judaism has the concept that that's overstated, but um, called tikkun olam. And basically it's that this world that we live in is imperfect and it's each person's responsibility to do their bit to repair it. And so those of us like you and like, uh, and like me who are blessed with the level of opportunity of education, I think we just have a sacred responsibility. I mean, the, uh, my friends, maybe members of my family, this think yeah, I'm just stupid because like, why not just spend your energy and your life's force just making as much money as you can. And there's lots of people now, I mean, we're in, you and I are in New York City. There's, you know, I have friends who are in the Hamptons and these huge estates that are guarded and, and they're, they're, they're zombie proof. Um, but it's my belief, and I've lived my life this way, that individuals can really make a difference but and that everybody has responsibility to try to make a difference to the best of their capacity with the resources they have. And I agree with you. i just wondering... Like, do you, do you make a difference in society, which may be setting yourself up for a task that's impossible, or do you make a difference in yourself and then try as in, and nobody's perfect, but you try as best as possible to live by example and to teach by example. Yeah. And that's how you impact society. And hopefully that ripples out, uh, as opposed to writing a mandate, you know, like I think the founders yeah. of the U S were able to write the constitution and that was like yeah. a blueprint for right. hundreds of countries now. And yeah. I don't know if such a blueprint is possible anymore or if those political structures are, are possible to s start from scratch now. Yeah, so I think your answer to your question is both. And there are lots of great ways to live a, a successful, healthy, supportive, great life. And there's a balance. I mean, people like Gandhi who kind of dedicated their lives to the common wheel, but screwed over their own, their own families. And so I, I just think that Everybody has to find what's what's right for them. Some of us, me, just the way my brain works is I think systemically, and that's how. And maybe I, I also have like a level of hubris, and so I I like to operate in that space, and that's why I focus on why I write books, why I kind of you know I come from a family of doctors, but doctors it's the retail business, and I think of of international human rights. That's the wholesale business, and mm -hmm. kind of we need. Um, we need both, and and just it's funny, you know. Everybody's home with their with their partners. So I was talking to my girlfriend because I told you I've been like working around the clock. I've never been more charged up than I am uh, than I am right now. And so I had this piece that came out a couple of days ago in CNN.com, and it was basically the argument was we're virtualizing our lives. Um, this is not some momentary thing. Um, so we have to think about how do we realize our best values in the new reality that we're in. And I, I list seven essential steps for that. One of them was connect emotionally with the people who are occupying your physical life. Like, and, and I was reading it to my girlfriend. She goes, she got pissed off. She goes, it's like, 
you've been a total dick <laughs> for days. <laughs> like you're working and working, working, and I'm here and I'm wanting to have some kind of, like I'm feeling afraid and I'm wanting kind of an emotional connection and you're problem solving, figuring out what needs to be done, what supplies we need, and you're not connecting emotionally. And so I think that we, this is a balance. None of us can get it right, but being human is is struggling with it. And you know, um, so so uh, uh, we've talked about a lot of issues. I think you you actually in our first podcast together, and we've done like I don't know two or three now or yeah. more. Uh, yeah. uh, you've really turned me on to the whole all the possibilities of genetic engineering. I first off, as I have mentioned in the intro, which I'll read. Uh, or I'll say after we finish the podcast, but Great. The, the intro, you, you, your book, Hacking Darwin, just came out in paperback. I highly encourage people to read it because I do think it's a blueprint for not only the future of medicine, but the, uh, the future of so many fantastic things coming to society. And I always love thinking it. Now I, I, I think about it pretty heavily I, to the point where I'm analyzing the stocks, even that are going to be good investments in this area, yeah. you know, like, look at George Church's company, for instance. Right. And uh, so I always love talking about this with you, but even more so like your ability to learn in completely different areas. I mean, you've worked in politics, you've been a science fiction novelist, you, you're you on all these committees about genetic engineering. You wrote this now seminal book, uh, Hacking Darwin on genetic engineering. Uh, we've got to have a part two at some point where if, if you're open for it, I want to talk sure. about a, and this is the teaser for the next podcast. I want to talk about uh, your your sperm, your active sperm donations. And you say you don't <laughs> have any kids, but do you have any kids? You know, I don't have any kids, but my sperm is frozen on Forty First in Lexington. <laughs> Ladies, take note. And uh, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about yeah. If there's if there's looting, <laughs> that, right. that's, I don't know if that's going to be a target. We've got to all the ladies going to loot. 41st and Lex before they escape from New York. Uh, and those are the the kind, the, the women who survive in that worst case scenario, maybe those are the ones who want your, your gene. You know, I was too old when I, when I stored, but you're welcome to it. <laughs> and then I, I just want to, I also want to talk about skill acquisition and how to get yeah. to the top of your field. Even yeah. if you start, start, people don't think it's possible. They think, well, he doesn't have a degree or he wasn't a writer from childbirth on, or he wasn't, a chocolate guy. You started being interested in chocolate. <laughs> I, I love that people ago. are saying that that I've reached such levels as a chocolate shaman. It's like he wasn't a chocolate. Where did he? Where did he get that? Skill? Well, right. So a lot of people who've been doing it, let's say for twenty years, they'll look at you and say, "Why is he in the club?" And I think that's yeah. an important part of today's skill acquisition is that we have to do it as adults rather than as kids. Like, look at what's going to happen after this pandemic the dust is going to clear and we're going to be left standing. And some people are going to have to change careers and some people yep. are going to have lots of us. So yes. And some people are going to have to be, find other passions and other interests and, and skip the line of being successful yes. in that career, which you've done very successfully in, in many careers. And, and other people are going to tell them, well, you can't do this. You don't have a right. PhD in genetic engineering. You haven't been doing chocolate shamanism for 20 years like we have you're not allowed to you haven't paid your dues and i think overcoming yeah, that uh is maybe part uh how do you say the word hubris but maybe yeah, and, and chutzpah hubris plus chutzpah but there's also a certain confidence and there's a certain yes. um yeah. a, a, an ability to meta learn like i'm sure you use the yeah. same tools for learning in yeah. each area and so yeah. uh 
And then, of course, that hubris leads to a massive sperm donation, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and then uh, I'd love to even talk about on the podcast about your TV projects. Uh, I would love it. So, I would love it. So let, let's just do it. I'm in. Um, you know, we're we're reconstituting. Just imagine it's like all those old movies where, like Battlestar Galactica, you kind of you come from someplace. Your old world has kind of broken in some ways and you have to reconstitute. We're all reconstituting now. We're reconstituting these virtual societies from home. And these kinds of, of conversations, not just between me and you, but hopefully our conversation um, will inspire other people to have their own conversations, whether it's around Hacking Darwin and there's a whole reader's guide there around anything else. And I think that's, we're reconstituting our society. This is our Battlestar Galactica moment. By the way, my and favorite series of all time, yeah, Ma Battlestar Galactica, the remake, oh, the remake, because that's where yeah. the most genetic engineering happens. As yes, well. yes. And there was a certain beautiful religious quality to that one, uh, as well as the original one, nineteen seventy-seven. But yeah, uh, they they really came full circle in this is in this other oh, one. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And frankly, I, had, I I'm not a big TV watcher. That was the first series that I'd ever watch. I missed Friends. I missed Seinfeld. I missed everything, and so. Like I was so emotionally connected. I remember it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of, I'm an atheist, but it's not like if I was like someone who was praying, I would be like, you know, dear Lord, please look after mom and dad and Starbuck. And I just feel like they, they yeah. were part of my life. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I have watched that entire series four times now. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, wow. It's great. Well, every time. It's impressive. Uh, because it's long. Yeah, it's long. Believe me, it's taken up a lot of my life. Uh, <laughs> that and the TV series Lost. But um, uh, uh, Jamie, I look forward to our next conversation. We'll, we'll set it up off offline, but uh, uh, it's going to be fun. And, and if we both get, both get coronavirus and we're both immune, we could do it in person. So, you know, that's this going to be this crazy thing is that we're, a lot of us are going to get it. Most people are going to survive. Um, we're going to learn about immunity. And there, there are some instances of people who got it twice. And then it's just like, we're going to reconstitute. This is a, I mean, not to whatever, overuse the word, but this is like a seminal moment um, in society. I think this is going to be much bigger than 2001, much bigger than 2008, that we're going to look back in our lives, just like the, the, the World War II generation um, looks back and say like, just life changed. I think this, I mean, it's hard to see everything from within, but this feels like one of those moments. Yeah, I agree. Again, sort of like 9-11, sort of like the financial crisis. I do think this is bigger, but we'll see. It's hard to predict. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. look, you're a few blocks away, but uh, yeah. good luck. Uh, <laughs> once we you know, once we have testing, we'll know where we stand. And if this was Hong Kong, we just say, hey, let's get tested. If we're both negative, you know, we'll, we'll meet up. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we'll have that hopefully soon. And, and, uh, you know, I do think my, your, your obsessive problem solving and, and work mode might right now, might be your own way of dealing with fear. So I do, 100%. I do encourage you to, uh, spend time with the girlfriend. As, I know. I know. She's, she's just right here. <laughs> she, she's right here. <laughs> well, uh, Jamie, good luck. And I will talk to you soon. All right, my friend really enjoyed it. Anytime looking forward to our future conversations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.